Today we finish up uh, John chapter 16, and then next week we move into the high priestly prayer, which will occupy us uh, for a little while. Um, but today we're looking at 25 through 33. Hear the word of our God. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came from the Father. And have come into the world, and now am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, help us to rightly understand these words. For they do, though though given to the apostles in light of what was going to happen that night and the next day, they also apply to us. For we too are going to have much trouble in this world. And so we ask that you would sustain us through your word that... Therefore, help us to understand this, that we might be sustained by it, by Christ through it. We ask this in his name. Amen. You know, sometimes I, I really love the providence of God. Um, <clears throat> I was, when on Fridays, when I bring the kids to uh, play, not play day, game day, um, which is a, a homeschool sort of thing, I usually walk around the park do three or four laps, and that's, that's the time when I listen to a sermon or something like that. Um, and so I chose Richard Pratt. And uh, this was the last in his series on the end times that he did up in Second Pres. Uh, I don't think it was Memphis, though. can't remember where it was. But it was the last one, and of course it had that great word in it, suffering, in the title. And he started off by mentioning a time when he was a brand new Christian in high school. Uh, he had converted when he was a junior. And uh, here in the middle of Roanoke, Virginia, this is how long ago this was, however, they had a rabbi come to school. Okay, that's when religious people could still go to school and talk to the people. And, uh, and being as cheeky as he was, he mentions, uh, he stood up and he had a question for the rabbi. And he said, Rabbi, why don't you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah? And for us, that would be a fairly pertinent question, would it not be? Although not very polite, perhaps. <laughs> he still had to grow. Okay, And the response of the rabbi was, the news. 
Richard at that moment wasn't sure what in the world he meant. But we all, I think, probably get what I just said. When we read the news or watch the news, we have trouble believing that Jesus is king of this world. Some of us, the other day, we woke up to, to hear that there was another shooting. And this time in Arizona, again, up in Flagstaff. And, it's, and one of the comments that one of you made was that someone misunderstood. <laughs> I want to go home. And what I think that person meant was, I want to be with Jesus, not I want to be in my physical house. It is this, it's in our face. All the time, uh, the, the suffering and the, the trouble of this world, and it can lead us to believe uh, that our faith is in vain at times, if we don't understand properly. And this is one of those passages that we have in the scriptures in which Jesus realigns our thinking so that while we embrace he, that he is the Messiah and that he is the king of this world now, that does not mean that there is no trouble and tribulation now. So I think we really have to listen to what he says here to us. The big idea is that Jesus, the conquering king, gives us peace. Let's start with this notion that we see in the first couple of verses here, that the Father delights in those who love and trust Jesus. And so Jesus admits to them that he has been speaking to them in, a, in an obscure fashion, and the ESV uses figurative speech, but it really has that idea of darkened, obscure kind of speech. It wasn't that he was speaking in terms of metaphor, but that it was not plain for the disciples to understand. He was deliberately vague, shall we say, in some sense. And I had that, that sense when I studied geometry, many of you remember geometry. I did well in math until I hit geometry. Everything changed with geometry. Okay? I can do the addition. I can do the subtraction, the multiplication, and divisions, blah, 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 blah. I did okay with algebra. You know, I was very intuitive when it comes to math. But then you get to this thing called geometry. And apologies to all of those who teach math amongst us. Because in geology, uh, geometry, not geology, that's rocks. Geometry, you have to prove things. <laughs> who wants to prove these things? Just tell me the formula and I'm good. I don't want to have to prove the formula. Okay? And so for the first quarter of geometry in 10th grade, I was pounding my head against a wall because it seemed so fruitless and foreign to me. And that's what I imagined the disciples must have felt, that when Jesus speaks, there's just some sort of disconnect. They're not exactly sure. I mean, yeah, okay, numbers. We have numbers here. We have angles. I kind of get that, but all the rest, there's, a, there's an element of what Jesus is saying that they don't get. Leon Morris, in talking about this, nope, wrong person. That was Calvin. Um, and I'm way ahead of myself, so let's go back to where I'm supposed to be. All right? In the midst of this, Jesus says that in that day, you will ask in my name, the day when he begins to speak plainly about the Father. 
And we see here that Jesus, or rather that the Father, hears prayers that are made in Jesus' authority. Okay? And when we think about this, let's not think about this in terms of Jesus being like a receptionist who receives a request and then hands the request on to the Father. What Jesus is saying is that you will speak directly to the Father, and the Father will directly hear you, but you speak in my name and authority, and that's where Leon Morris comes into this. Okay, He explains this, or tries to explain this as, asking in his name is not a way of enlisting his support, like gathering an, Eli, an ally, you know, how children sometimes do. Maybe if all of us ask mom and dad, they'll give this request. Okay, It's not that sense. It is rather a pleading of his person and of his work for men. It is praying on the basis of all that he is and has done for our salvation. And so the idea is is that we ask that we have access to the Father and he wants to answer our prayers, not because of our goodness, but because of the goodness of the Son. And so we find a warm reception in his presence because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so he encourages them to pray in that day. But he wants to encourage them even further. Because you see, he says, the Father himself loves you. It is not as though you know Jesus has manipulated the Father into answering the prayers of his people, but he wants to encourage them by reminding them that the Father himself loves you. We need not fear that he loves Jesus and not us. We think, again, back to, say, chapter 3, but we see it all through John's Gospel, that Jesus came into the world precisely because the Father loved His people and sent His Son. We should be done with this idea that somehow the Father is unwilling to love these people and Jesus comes to you know, place us in good graces with God so that God now loves. No, He loved and He sent his son, and our access to him in prayer is meant to be a tangible benefit of the son coming, up, coming to us because of his love. But some aspect of this is uncertain. Not uncertain, but meant to intrigue us, shall we say. Because love here, the father's love for us, is set within this framework of affection or approval. The word that is used here is not what the one we find in John 3.16, for God so loved, agape. It is the one that we get Philadelphia from, the love of brothers. Okay? Affection, approval, uh, the aspect of love that's about friendship and family. Okay, not this, necessarily the sacrificial giving, but we see that the Father has affection for you. So let that sink in for a second. Jesus wants his disciples to know that the Father doesn't just tolerate you, he sets his affection upon them. That they Don't just have his begrudging approval, but they have his 
full-hearted approval. He wants them near. He wants to shower them, so to speak, with love and attention. But what Jesus says next, in a sense, can shock us. Okay, while he hears because he delights in us and it has affection for us, he loves us because you have loved me and have believed. And so this kind of love that Jesus talks about here, this affection, this approval is tied with our same word used, love uh, or affection and approval for the Son. It is God's response to our affection towards His Son. And that's why we need to go back, I think, to Psalm 2. And we need to remember that Jesus here is the Anointed One. Jesus is the One that the Father has established on His holy hill to be the King. And to those who embrace the King, who kiss the Son receive the Father's love in return. That, I believe, is, is what is going on in here. The, they have loved Jesus, they have affection for Jesus, and they believed and continue to believe that He has come from the Father. This is Psalm 2 in fulfillment in part. We'll see it more if we continued on into Acts chapter 2, uh, Acts chapter 1. But still... But here's the process. If we draw back, okay? If we keep this in mind, the, the, the greater picture of what's going on. God had sacrificial love, as we see in, in 1 John. Sacrificial love for His people. Therefore sent His Son to be a propitiation for their sin. And because our sins have been propitiated or taken away, and we experience forgiveness. Therefore, we have this affectionate love for Jesus who loved us and gave Himself for us. And because we have that affectionate love for Him, the Father showers even more affectionate love upon His people. That's what's going on. That's what we see here. That's what Jesus wants us to know and embrace. And John got it. John understood it. And he didn't just receive it, he also gave it. For we see in 3 John, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That filled his heart with a joy. Just as the Father's heart in heaven is filled with joy when he sees his people walking in truth, so John's heart was filled. And I'll tell you, as a pastor, I have that joy. Years and years and years ago, the first wedding I think I did when I was, after I was a pastor, I was able to sneak one in and up in Pennsylvania because they got different laws up there. So, this young couple, Owen and Christina, showed up after church one day and wanted to have a wedding in, you know, their wedding in our facility. And so we sat down and we talked and, and, and I finally, you know, are you Christians? Oh yeah, we're Christians. Okay. What do you mean by that? 
And so they gave an answer that was about it works. And so I offered them the gospel. And they believed. And for a little while, they were a part of our congregation, but they, there were complications that, you know, made them feel uncomfortable. Okay? So, you know, but it was great to run into them at, at Publix years later and to know they're still engaged with Jesus. They're still walking in the faith. That brought, brought joy to my heart, even though I don't see them, even though um, I'm not the one who's discipling them and encouraging them. I knew they're still with Jesus. Joy in my heart. Amen. That's the idea that we see here. As the Father delighted in the disciples, He delights in all who trust and delight in His Son because He loves His Son so much. And so Jesus encourages us to pray as our King precisely because the Father delights in all who kiss the Son. Secondly, uh, Jesus sees our faith for what it really is. And that is really hard for us, I think, to recognize that Jesus sees our faith for what it really is because we have a hard time seeing our faith for what it really is. The disciples exclaim, Now you are speaking plainly. See, they finally understand something of what Jesus said. And this is where I meant to put that quotation by John Calvin that I wrongly attributed to Leon Morris. For though their understandings were not completely darkened like those of unbelievers, still they are covered, as it were, with clouds. And so he's basically saying that the disciples at this point in their life were not walking in utter darkness as though it was pitch black and there's no moon because the clouds have obscured the, the moon and the stars and it just, it's desert dark, okay? Not like Phoenix, because I got all those lights up, okay? Desert dark, where you can't even see your hand in front of your face kind of dark. They're not walking in that like the unbelievers are, but they're walking in a really cloudy day where they can't see quite everything, but they can see enough, okay? The light, we're, they're now in the light, but the, the noetic effect of sin, the way sin has affected our brains, you know, we still don't think as well as we should. The sanctification of our minds is still taking place, as Calvin would probably summarize that. And so here they say, ah, oh, finally you're, you're speaking plainly, finally we understand you, and they make this odd statement, we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. Now if you're like me, maybe you're better than me, but initially I went, what? Well, the answer is in what we talked about last week. Is that, you know, remember, they had these questions. They didn't understand what Jesus had said, and they're sort of mumbling amongst themselves. Do you know what Jesus meant by this? And they're not asking him, and he interrupts them and says, by the way, <laughs> okay? In Matthew 6, Jesus told his disciples that the Father knows what you need even before you pray. And so here in John 16, Jesus knows their questions before they ask. And so there's some sort of light that goes on in their brains and says, He and the Father are one. 
He doesn't have to ask, we don't have to ask him the question for him to know we have the question and he's able to answer the question. And so they see Jesus and the Father as one, that he is just like the Father and he has indeed come from God. Now, you would think that Jesus would be eminently pleased, especially on the, on the basis of what we just read, where he talks about how the Father loves them because they love him and they believe that he has come from the Father. You'd think that Jesus would be jumping up and down with joy, right? Instead, he says, do you now believe? Jesus knows the fragility of faith. He knows how fragile their faith is. And he knows how, fi- how fragile your faith is. And he also knows that the hour, the testing, is coming. Let's think back to geometry for a moment. When you think it's come together, when you think you finally understand this new concept, You don't really know until you take the test. And you sit at your desk, and you don't have your books open, and you have to answer the problems, and you have to prove the corollaries, not the corollaries. Corollaries are unproven. They're presuppositions, right? (laughs) You want me to verify this stuff because you don't want me to be a complete fool up here, right? Okay. So you don't prove corollaries. You use corollaries to prove other things, right? Oh, it's axioms. You failed me. <laughs> or, did, or did I misunderstand you? It's the latter. You, I misunderstood you? Okay, axioms. That's the word I wanted, yes. See, that's why I had questions about this. I forgot it was axioms. Okay, for those of you who are listening to this later. Axioms. <laughs> We could apply the axioms to prove the corollaries and everything else when it comes to geometry. And you don't know if you really get it until you sit down and do it without your book. You can't, you know, go, oh yeah, that's how I do it. Hate those tests, don't you? Okay. The test for them is coming. Are they going to believe when the hour arrives? when Jesus is no longer with them. That is what is at work here. And Jesus gives them some bad news. That's the problem of being best friends with the Son of God. He already knows what's going to happen. And he lets them know so that they're not surprised and they're not overly discouraged by what happens. But he says, you will be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. They're going to abandon him. And again, that providence of God thing. I'm in Chronicles right now. And this week, one of the passages I read in Chronicles was when Ahab and Jehoshaphat uh, got together and they were going to fight another army. And all of the prophets of the Israel had come and and said one thing, and, and Jehoshaphat was not entirely pleased with this. And he's like, well, don't you have a prophet of the Lord here? 
And of course, Ahab says, yeah, there's that one guy, and he always says things against me. He doesn't like me. He took it personally and didn't repent anyway. So, of course, this prophet comes in, and he, he mocks it and says, yeah, oh, yeah, you're going to win. And there had to be something about what, the way he said it that indicated to Ahab that it, it, he was pulling his leg. He said, you tell me the truth now. Said, you will be struck in almost the same language. Your people will be scattered, and each one will go to his own home. Because the king was dead. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. The king is going to die, and the disciples will scatter and go home, because now they have no hope. Their faith was fragile. And so we see, as we ponder this, that the disciples who were future apostles were not strong in and of themselves. The boldness that we see in Acts is not the boldness born of their strength. It is a boldness born of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And if you think about your own life and evangelism and you think about your weakness, which is good, you need to remember you're weak when it comes to this, but where does the power come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. The boldness will come from the Holy Spirit. It's not about you. It is about Him showing Jesus to other people. And so these disciples abandoned Jesus in His hour of need. In other words, His hour of testing was the same as their hour of testing. Hmm. Jesus would pass His test. He was faithful. The disciples failed miserably as their faith was overcome with fear. And let's not be too hard on them, because too often our faith is overcome by our fears. Jesus offers them a measure of comfort. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Though he was abandoned by his best friends, he was not abandoned by his Father. And this, in some sense, is confusing because there is a sense in which Jesus is abandoned to the wrath of God. But on the other hand, we see that Jesus gains the Father's approval in his resurrection, which means that he's vindicated that sin had no part of him, that the death he died was for the sin of others, and that sin had been removed. And so Jesus is not impressed with our faith, but rather he knows it is fragile, and he knows that we are often fearful. And so, brothers and sisters, be courageous. Because Jesus conquers. We are to be courageous precisely because Jesus conquers. Okay, though they're abandoned by Jesus, Jesus does not abandon them. And that's our great fear, isn't it? 
That we bail on Jesus, that Jesus is going to bail on us. That we kind of project our frailty and folly and foolishness onto Jesus, and he has no part of that. Where we are often faithless, he is faithful. And so he does not abandon us. Jesus, when he speaks these things, he's not condemning them. We could sometimes hear this as condemnation, but that's not what his intention is. But he's speaking the truth in love to them to prepare them so that when it happens, they won't be destroyed by it. They won't be overcome with despair. They won't be overcome with that sense of unworthiness to be a follower of Jesus. That they're unworthy of the King who died for His people. But they will recognize that that is the reason He had to die for His people. And so, we see the be- this... Remember, this is the end of what is often called the upper room discourse, though this part takes place after they've left the upper room. This is the end. At the beginning in John 14.1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so those are the bookends of this entire discourse where Jesus is seeking to comfort his people, not just because of what will happen to Jesus, but also we see what they will do themselves, the ways they're going to fail. And so here on the end he says that in me you may have peace, that our union with Christ brings us peace precisely because He is the Prince of Peace. He is the God of Peace. And so if we are united with Him by love and faith, there's nothing else we can have but peace. This is essentially important precisely because He then says, In the world, you will have tribulation. He prepares them. When Hebrews was written, this verse has to be in mind, precisely because in chapter 2 of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus rules over all things, and there's this little statement though, though it doesn't seem so now. There's an already, not yet aspect to the kingship of Jesus. He already is king, not just of heaven, but is already the king of this world. However, it does not yet always appear that way. And as a result, there are troubles. There is tribulation. And we read about it in the newspaper or we read about it on the internet and our hearts break when we read yet another story about someone who has no hope, who has no idea of the value of human life and takes it so carelessly. Or when there are whole nations blown to pieces because of hatred 
and bitterness. They're going to have tribulation. And it's not just going to be out there, but we see that they're also going to experience persecution. And Jesus reminds them, while you remain in the world, you will experience these things. And so if you watch those guys on TV who somehow promise you that if you follow Jesus, all will be well. They are liars. Jesus doesn't speak that way. Oh, it will all be well in the end. and We still are united to Christ, and so we're still preserved in the midst of tribulation, but we're going to have tribulation. We're going to have hard times. And it may be some, it may be cancer and disease or injury or tribulate persecution. That's the word I wanted to pull out. We can't escape it. And any theology that claims that we can is subbiblical because it disagrees with Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Word of God who has come from the Father, who speaks nothing except what the Father has told him to say, including that little sentence right there. The Father, because he loves his people, is letting him know there will be trials. Don't take that as an indication that Jesus doesn't reign. Don't take that as an indication that Jesus does not love you. Do not take that as an indication that the Father does not love you. If you do, you're misinterpreting it, misunderstanding it. And so he makes this one command at the end, take heart. You, can, you could interpret that as be courageous, which is what I did. Okay, This is a common command in Scripture to those who are in distress and who are living in fear. It is the call to live by faith. We read about it in Joshua 1. Here's Joshua. Moses just died. His mentor, the mediator between God and Israel, is dead. And he's the one who's supposed to lead the people into the promised land across the the Jordan River where there's all those people waiting for them in their walled cities. So God speaks to him and says... Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Or as it says right before that, be strong and courageous. If you go back and reread Joshua 1 and 2, be encouraged by how many times God has to tell Joshua, be strong and courageous. He couldn't just say it once. It'd go boom, boom, boom. Because Joshua's like you and me. He's got to hear it a couple of times. Acts 23. The following night the Lord stood by him, referring to Paul, and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Where was Paul when God said this? Prison. 
be strong and courageous. Mark 6. For they all saw him referring to Jesus. This is what Jesus is on the water, and, and they're not. <laughs> they're in the boat. They saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And later in Mark 10, the son of Timaeus is crying out to Jesus because he's blind. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they said to the blind man, Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Of all the people in the crowd, he called blind son of Timaeus to come. And so when we're overwhelmed with life, do not be afraid is one of the most common commands in the whole of Scripture. But also, take heart. Be courageous. Not because of what's in you, but as this points back to what, who Jesus is. We don't take heart because we're strong. We don't take heart because we're wise. We don't take heart because we're persevering or we're eminently handsome. That should have gotten a laugh. Because it isn't about us. We take heart because, as Jesus says here, I have overcome the world. Not, I will, I have. Jesus wore Nike, so to speak. That's what Nike is. Nike was the goddess of victory. And this verb that we find conquering or victorious is from that word Nike. Okay? Jesus is the true victor. Jesus is the true conqueror. I mean, if we are united to Jesus, then we overcome too. We see this in Revelation 12. The saints who were persecuted, it says, they have conquered Him, meaning the beast, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. In other words, they love Jesus more than they love themselves, and they, test, they conquered by His blood and by the testimony or the gospel. We see this as well in 1 John chapter 5, when it says, For everyone who has been born of God... Okay, so if you're a regenerate Christian, which all Christians are, well, true Christians are, if, you're, if you've been born again, you have overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, and we would add, and who died and rose again and has ascended and sits at the Father's right hand where He rules over heaven and earth. Because we're joined to Jesus, we share in His victory we too overcome. Now Jesus conquered Satan and the world by His blood. You've got a nifty little quote by R.C. Sproul in there. By His death. 
And so we conquer by the same thing. And we conquer despite distress, precisely by believing in the Christ who came and died for sinners. You know, this is not only the other scriptures we like, but Romans 8. No. In all these things, the famine, the persecution, all of that stuff, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And it doesn't mean that we aren't touched by them and afflicted by them, but we conquer in the midst of them. Though we're touched by them. So, quickly, one thing about this. When it comes to the world and how we interact with the world, one of the things I think we need to keep in mind is that we are to adopt a position of powerlessness, of weakness. How did Jesus conquer? By flexing his muscles or his weakness? His weakness. Our flesh cries out to be powerful. And when we engage the culture, we want to do it, I think because of our sin, because of our pride, on the basis of power. We want our political party, and depending on who I talk to in this room, that's a different party, to be in power. To have the control. To do what we want done. That's not the way of Jesus. Not at all. We are entering into a different phase for the life of the church in America. And that is going to be one where we have no power. And that can be frightening, but that is good. We'll keep the main thing the main thing. And we'll call people to the main thing. Christ and Him crucified. So Jesus is the King of this world right now. He conquered Satan. He conquered the world. It doesn't always look like it. And so again, there's this already not yet aspect to it. Sin is not yet gone, for instance, but we already have our prayers heard by the Father if we kiss the Son whom He installed as Messiah. Jesus knows that we are weak, that we are fearful, and so He provides peace to us so that we can weather the tribulations of life. And so continue to look to Him, our conquering King, who never abandons us. Though sometimes we abandon him. Let's pray. Father, we indeed are called to live by faith and not by sight. And this passage, I believe, makes it clear to us that that is how we are to live when it comes to the kingship of Jesus by faith and not by sight.
Because, Father, we wish we could see more evidence in our world that Jesus reigns. Because we are tired of pain and suffering that's produced by sin that seems to be everywhere. And so help us to cling in our feeble faith to the fact that Jesus does reign. And that he reigns at your right hand, and that is the reason why we can pray what he told us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For if he did not reign, there'd be no point in praying it. And so, Father, we do long for that day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. Help us to live between now and then with hope, with courage, with boldness, born not of ourselves, but of the Holy Spirit by whom Christ dwells in us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.